Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Mark, can we go straight into who dares wins then? Well, sure, whatever you, whichever way you want to go. Yeah, let, let, let's go for that because I know a lot of our uh, our viewers will be um, interested. I tried to get in the SAS um, and I failed uh, because I was too hard. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can see that about you. You've got, you know, it's your eyes, mate. You know what I mean? Immediately. It's the one inch punch that I perfected, or is it the double that I, that's what. <laughs> That's what it, frightens people. Yeah, well, it's it's that or the thousand yard stare. You've got to practice the old thousand yard glare. That's just, that's just when I'm when I'm stoned. <laughs> I, I well, let me give you the background to this because um, I'm sure some of your uh, uh, listeners will be interested or, or not. But anyway, I was doing a show in the West End called Evita, and I was playing Che Guevara. And I'd already met Lou. I met Lou up in Manchester when he was doing the Cuckoo Waltz. So we'd been sort of pals on and off. And I bumped we kept bumping into each other at Do's in the West End. And um, during the day, my family, I come from a long line of military people. I come, my, going back to my great grandfather, we served all over the world. My father and his four brothers, three brothers, all served in the Second World War. I grew up in it with a history of people serving the First World War military medals and all kinds of stuff so um it was just a tradition in the family but i'd gone into the music business uh, and the entertainment industry and i was uh, but as we all did in those days everybody was you know wanted to do something surf somewhere all of my pals all my mates were kind of involved so we used to go regularly to the brecon beacons and run up and down the pen and penny fan and all that kind of stuff so we used to go up there and do that a lot um and i'd finish a show on a saturday night and we'd drive out to wales and go up and down the mountains and run around the mountains and come back and go back to the show on a on a monday night um and anyway i actually bumped into lewis collins uh, in the Brecon Beacons, it's absolutely true story, in the middle of nowhere, with Tom Conti and a bunch of other people and Ian Sharp, the director of Udez Wins. And we literally bumped into each other in the middle of somewhere. And um, we got chatting, it was raining, of course, we just did the chat. I said, what are, you, what are you doing up here? Why are you up here now? Because I knew he was involved with Ten Para at the time as well, um, which he passed, of course, He'd be, he had his cherry berry. And... Um, he said, oh, I'm training for this film I'm going to do called Who Dares Wins. Ian's directed it. So I got chatting with Ian, Ian literally in the Brecon Beacons. And I said, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm playing Che Guevara in a feature. He said, I'd love to come and see you. So Ian and Lou and their respective partners came to see Evita with me playing Che. And afterwards, um, as we got towards more of the production of the film, Ian said, I'd love you to be in this film. I want you to play his character, one of the bad guys. So I said, okay, fine. So the last six to eight weeks, I think it was six weeks of me playing Shane in the West End, I would drive to Pinewood or wherever we were shooting and we shot my segments um, in the film. And uh, as I say, Lou and I remained friends all the way up to when I was doing Robin of Sherwood. Um, We'd been pals a long time and uh, and had quite a few adventures. So... Uh, 
that's how it all came about. That was the reality why I got invited by Ian to be involved with the film. Wow, sorry, I was just going to get a picture of Che up there for our younger friends out there who who um, might not have been barraged by the T-shirts that we were growing up. I've, um, I've followed Che's story, you know, I've followed it from Argentina to, to um, Cuba, down to, it was Bolivia who was executed in, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was, yes, he was off, yes, sadly. I, I think maybe we... We take that, Mark, as maybe a podcast for another day because it's... Um, I'm happy to talk about yeah any of that. There's a whole show to be doing about Justy Vita in the background of that. I have spent four years in that in the West End. Yeah, so. and I've been to um, Buenos Aires and been to Evita's mausoleum, is that the right word? The big concrete yep. thing that they put families in? Yeah. Um, but getting back to Who Dares Wins, so you know Lewis. Yeah. How did you... You got to play... Can we say the bad? I don't like to use the word bad guy, but I don't. Yeah, that that's what well, it is, right? I was. Don't forget. So I'm playing Shay. I had a beard and long curly hair, and I know it's weird now because you're going to go, "What did you once have hair?" And I once had a, a head of curly hair, and um, and so I looked very, very sort of uh, Mediterranean-ish. So I was playing Shay Guevara. So I ended up playing Nazir and Robin and Sherwood, and um, that's also due to Ian Sharp. Um, and uh, he obviously looked at me and went, oh, he, he's going to play like a bad guy. You're one of the terrorists or something. So um, uh, that's our cast because of the way basically I looked. And also I was obviously playing Shay. So um, uh, I ended up playing one of the bad guys. And Lou was desperate to shoot me. That is absolutely true. He was st- all the way through the filming was, I'm trying to have it rewritten so at the end I can shoot you, <laughs> which then became a joke. Um, but I was actually shot by a stuntman called Terry Forrestal, who was also uh, in the Special Forces. And uh, Forrestal died uh, during a parachuting accident, as his a base jumping accident some years ago. But Terry was uh, uh, was the, actually the person that shot me in the face. But Lou was desperate to do it, so he, but he never did. He never got to shoot me. Can we just um, just just go back there a sec? Did you say an SAS guy that died in a base jump? Yeah, Terry Forrestal was a member of the regiment. He wasn't that chap that was on a documentary on the television, was he? I don't know um, which documentary are you referring oh, to. I was chatting the other day with one of my base jumping friends about this. So I'm not sure if it was Mike McCarthy. Um, yeah, I can't quite remember. Well, there was two. Tip Tipping is, was one guy. Tip Tipping was a guy that was killed in a parachuting accident. Yeah, and I've had Andy Guest on the podcast who was um, in the Royal Marines free fall display team. And right. they were, um, I was asking them if they knew, I saw a documentary about 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago now. And, it was an SAS guy parachuting up there in Norway where they jump off the cliffs in the, in the yeah. base jump. Yeah. And he, tur- he was turning to his mates and going, do you know, I don't quite feel right about it, you know, and there's a key, a key sign of like, well, you shouldn't be throwing Just yourself, here. you know. Yeah. And of course, yeah, well, I say of course, but ultimately he, this chap died. And now, now that you mentioned it, I just wondered if it could be the same person. Well, it might have been because what the case was um, followed a li- for a couple of days because what actually happened was he was brushed against the cliff face. He was forced against the cliff face by the, the wind and he ended up on a ledge and he, he'd already got two broken legs, uh, Teddy, 
from a previous stunt that went wrong from on a motorbike. So he had he rebroke his legs. And so he was on this cliff face, but it was too windy to get a chopper in. So he was literally on this cliff face um, waiting to be rescued, but they couldn't get to him. And from what I understand, he either decided to get off the cliff and try and open his spare chute or whatever, or he got, or he fell off the cliff, whatever, he slipped off the cliff face and, and he very sadly was, uh, uh, he was killed in the accident. Oh, yes. It's that Teddy thing, Ford. isn't it? It's better to die being a, you know, living like a tiger than it is to live, live as a coward. Teddy was a, Teddy was a good stuntman. And, um, you know, as with all of these things, and I know plenty of people, Martin Grace, for instance, being a good pal of mine over the years, Martin Grace was also uh, one of the best Bond stuntmen ever. He got injured quite seriously on a Bond film and broke his legs. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you want to go out shining. You don't want to go out, you know, with a whimper. And um, these guys understand risk, you know. And what I didn't understand about that was, and it does happen in this business a lot, you you do a risky thing once and it works and you've got it in the can hopefully you've got it filmed and then they'll go back could you give us another one and that is always when the accidents happen is when you just go beyond that one thing of of safety and that is when and it can sometimes be fatal and terry was a stuntman teddy forrestal yeah yeah i'm just going to get a picture up i've i've got one here of him throwing himself off a off a scaffold. Uh, I don't know if that's meant to be an explosion going off behind him. I'm guessing it is. Probably. That's either Martin Grace or Terry Forrestal. Yeah. Anyway. Fun, funnily enough, there's very few photos of him on the internet, which I suppose you expect from a stuntman because they're generally not supposed to be seen, are they? Or they're, well, they're, and all they hide their faces. You'll notice there's a lot of this going on. You know, yes. you'll see who dares wins. In fact, Martin Grace was the double for Lewis Collins in uh, Who Dares Wins. You'll see him a lot. We're, we're in the scene where I get on the bus behind Lewis. There's a scene where Lewis then gets off the bus and he's almost run down by a car. But it's actually uh, Martin Grace, his stunt double. And the other scene where he jumps onto the boat, where he runs and I'm chasing him on the motorbike and he jumps on the boat, that was also Martin Grace. So, you know, that's the connection there is between the stunt guys, Martin Grace and, and Terry and, and, and Lou. And Martin Grace has done Indiana Jones, am I right? Yeah, did everything. He Let's did get a, lot a picture of him. of him up. He's got a very quintessential English gentleman look, hasn't he? Yeah, but he was Irish. Ah, uh, God, no. Very Irish. Hey, Martin, if there's very... anyone that puts their foot in their mouth, mate, uh, that's me. But, but don't, don't worry about it. Sorry, Ireland. <laughs> there we go. Look, there he is. Brilliant. Brilliant. So yes, yeah, so back back to the film then. Um, what's it like to know Lewis? Then I was going to say what's he like, but that's uh, I'm not into dishing dirt on people. But but maybe there's some stuff people would like to know about the the, the well, legendary he, side of his character. I'm I'm which I'm sure. Lou Lou passed away a few years ago, as you know, and and I think he made an interesting decision for an actor in his life, and and. He'd done everything, you know. He'd he'd been a big star with professionals, obviously, and he did Who Dares Wins, and then he had he did some other films afterwards, and he worked on he worked to, um, on films afterwards after Who Dares Wins. Um, but I think he got to a point where he wanted to break the mold and go off in a different direction, so he, he went to California and uh, started a computer business, and I think he did a few 
bits and pieces here and there, and he did some fan conventions. But really, I think he became uh, a family man. And he and Michelle have got the three sons, and, and he seemed very happy. I mean, we even though we were pals for over a decade uh, before he got married to Michelle, um, uh, and we had lots of adventures and stuff, we got into all kinds of trouble. Um, he uh, Once he'd done that, he, he kind of made himself a bit of a recluse. And I was asked, I have been asked many times to write stuff uh, for his aut various autobiographies that have been attempted. And I've always said to the writer, do you have Lewis's permission to do this? Um, and they went, no. And I said, well, if you get Lewis's permission, um, I'm happy to tell you stories. And I said, but I won't if he doesn't want it. I mean, it's different if he's coming from me because it's my personal impressions and experiences. And I'm free to talk about my experiences with him as a bloke. Um, but I don't want to write or speculate about anything else about it because I don't want to spread. I wouldn't want to be seen to be spreading. This just came up recently with an interview I did about him. You know, it's uh, why anybody would think I would do that. I don't know. No, Lou was... Um, a complex man, um, uh, but actually in a way simple man. He was very fun-loving. He was very full of uh, jolly japes and actually uh, a master of comedic one-liners and timing. And I know people don't get that from him, probably in some of the work that he's done, but he was a very funny, uh, fun-loving, you know, big softy, really. Um, and I think he probably, uh, like all of us do at some point proceeding, said, okay, well, let's find out if I could be a para. Let's find out. So he did do his full para training with Tem Para. Um, the man that trained him was a personal friend of mine called John Newman, who was one para. And uh, when, when they were up at Finchley, which I've slept on that drill or floor once or twice, and uh, Lou past P Company and he, he got through and he got his cherry berry and he got his wings. So I, I respect him for that. I respect anybody that's done any service that's thrown themselves in or volunteer. I never have a bad word uh, uh, to, for anybody that's done that unless they're being stupid, in which case then you just got to say, look, mate, you know, wind it in. Mark, you can know, I just chip, chip in here? I mean, no disrespect to anyone. It's just not who I want to be. But we did have a subscriber the other day said he didn't actually pass his jumps course he 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 i think injured his leg on the third jump and the guy that was writing this knows the uh, the ds on the course so the staff i'm not trying to be controversial i'm just trying no, to no, not no. acknowledge the the chap out there that that said that, that that he sounded like he knew what he's talking about is what i'm trying to say but well, ask him, this this person, you can ask him if he knew Colour Sergeant John Newman, B-E-M. And I know from John that he did get his wings and he went back and completed the course and did the seven jumps. Yeah. Now, there may be some, uh, as I've heard myself, I've heard everything, even people from my side of the, the, the business, I've had every story from, oh, Lou got beaten up in the Special Forces Club and was kicked, got the shit kicked out of him and all that and got thrown out on the street. I have asked people in the regiment, do you know this story? Have you ever heard a story about Lewis Collins getting beaten up in the Special Forces Club? Because this bloke said it and I don't believe it because I don't think Lou's like that. And he said, I've asked people and they've gone, Never heard that story. But you can ask Rusty the story about him going to Hereford and them having a few jars in the bar, if you like, at Hereford, because that's a true story. I know that's a true story. So a lot of people have got stories about um, 
what they think they know about people. I can only tell you what I know. And so I was told by John Newman that he completed his course, he got his wings and he got his berry. Yeah, and, and everybody knows if 2-2 if SAS tried to rough up Lewis Collins, he just turned around and beat them all up. <laughs> I've seen the film. I've, I've seen the film. See, you know, yeah. Lou could handle himself. Don't get me wrong. Lou, Lou could handle himself. Lou was very physical and he knew how to throw a punch. And uh, he certainly wasn't backwards in coming forwards, you know. And like a lot of people, I'll, I'll just name drop because it's true. Um, Ray Winston, all of these guys that have got that persona um, uh, in their film career doesn't mean they go out looking for trouble, but people go looking for them. People want to go, oh, I beat up Bodie in the pub or I beat up Bodie in the club or whatever. And suddenly from what may have been a bit of pushing and shoving and a bit of, you know, sharp words, turns up, oh, no, he got the shit kicked out of him. Well, I can tell you the same thing with Ray. Ray knows how to throw a punch. Ray boxed for England. So Ray knows how to throw a punch, right? Uh, Lou knew how to throw a punch. Now, he may well have got a bit leery and he may, so he may have been asked to leave. I don't know, but I've never come across anybody told me that they kicked the crap out of him. It's, you know, I, I kind of had the, the, the same thing a little bit, but it's usually just online chatter. People don't know you, you know what I mean? They assume they know you because they've seen you. But Lou, Lou I, I, I'd not heard that myself. Shall we just clear up then? Not, not that it's our job to, and again, not that I really care, but did he pass select? SAS selection is that is that the rumor is friends at home um, that Lou passed SAS selection whether that be through the reserves uh, I'm guessing through the reserves and then was denied a place in the regiment because of his fame well I think a lot of it comes from the misunderstanding of what that means and so let me let me clear that up First of all, he went on selection for 2-1 SAS, which is the reservist element, artist rifles. They're now a different role uh, than what they did originally during this period. They had a different role in Europe than what they have now. But 2-1 SAS, uh, he went on selection for, and my understanding is he, per he passed the first phase. It's like anything. It's like people think you become a member of the intelligence corps and they just hand you a Walther PPK in a tuxedo and say, off you go, you now speak German or something. Off, you know, it's not the way it works. Mechanically, what uh, happened from Lou's own mouth to me was that he passed the first phase, which was probably the, the beacons phase, the physical phase and running up and down phase. Because the next phase would have been jungle, he would have gone to Belize and he would have then gone through a, a, a resistance to interrogation phase, which I don't think he got up to. I think he got up to the first physical phase and he passed that. And that's when they realized that having Bodie, you know, if he ever did actually, he couldn't really fulfill the role because he would have been, he was too high profile. He told me that himself. And he said that one of the PSIs came to him and said, mate, you're too high profile. Everybody knows who you are. We, we'd love to carry on and it's great it's been great for the lads to work with you but it, it just is not going to work because you, you you everybody knows your face i guess we should point out we were doing a lot of work in northern ireland then weren't we and well two one wasn't um the the the, the actual the reality of it is is that a reservist can work um for uh, the British government in war zones. It's, it's a fallacy that TA soldiers don't 
don't serve overseas. They do. And in the old days, you used to be able to take what was called an S-type engagement, which basically meant you were temporarily made a regular soldier. And so you became, like in the Gulf War, there was plenty, trust me, there was more than uh, reservists than you would imagine serving in the Gulf. And there was more reservists serving during the Bosnia campaign. People don't, I know people don't think this, and I know reservists don't, uh, regulars don't like it, but that's true. The truth is the British Army cannot function without its reservist element. That's a fact. It's a pure fact. And under now, under recently, what well, the changes, the British Army more than ever cannot function without its reserves. So, um, uh, 2 1 had a role which was in Europe in those days, um, which it's probably it's a matter of public knowledge now, but if you've ever heard the expression Gladius or any or uh, Gladio or any of those operations where left behind troops were spread all out over you know Europe to take on the Russians from behind, that's what their part of their role was, part of their role. So it's changed a bit now. So, but Lou was a British, you know. Uh, housewives favorite and so he probably he was just too high profile he told me that himself and to be honest with you i think he took it on the chin i don't think he was bitter about it you know i think he was kind of like i get it i understand you know um uh, so that's that's the story that lou told me i mean i'm sure there's plenty of other people out there that are going to come up with oh he's wrong that's not the whatever i can only tell you what lewis connish told me himself yeah i i sympathize with him because did I tell you I didn't get in the SAS? Um, yes, you did say that. Yeah, but you know, but but it is a lot of it is about if your face fits, and you can ask Rusty this, you can ask any of the boys this. There's a lot of personal, um, what can I say? Choices are made about who they think. The, the whole. Have you ever heard the expression "the grey man"? Well, that's a. Um... That's a very often quoted term, isn't it, with respect to getting into the SAS? Or the intelligence corps. Being the grey man, don't get noticed. Yeah. Don't get noticed. And, um, yeah, being the grey man for the regiment is very important. But it's, it's also true for in corps and various what is now the, the Special Reconnaissance Regiment. I mean, that thing, be the grey man. Don't, get, don't stand out and don't, well, Lou stood out. <laughs> he was fit i can tell you that lou was a very very fit man yes it's also i think what we don't know what we don't realize about celebrities especially in this sort of x-factor culture where you can be a hairdresser one day and to next day you're a you're a number one selling artist is these folks they've done this from a very young age they're incredibly talented aren't they most most actors, if you put them in an opera or theatre or music, they can sing, they can dance, they can do impressions. They're they they they're quite funny. They have a, a that can we say they're in touch with their feminine self, which I, I say is a positive thing. And yet here's here's this guy that's got got all these qualities that I've just mentioned, but also that he can smash it out with the SAS I respect him for trying I really do I respect anybody that tries uh, and I respect anybody that's gone through any of the basic training and have put themselves into uh, the firing line it, it's uh, 
uh, I think we all do it for various reasons. And uh, for my, I say, for, for me, it was a, it was a looking back at a family tradition. I didn't really have much choice to just volunteer. It was was one of those things. But um, no, that Lou Lou um, uh, is sometimes is maligned. Uh, but for most people that knew him and knew why he did it, I, I think we all have respect for him. Yes. I'm wearing my Adidas top in um, in homage to Lou today because <laughs> pretty sure he wore one of these in the professionals. He always was quite cool. So, yeah. Uh, I can tell you this, who dares wins, and I know this from people, in because I, I, you know, I lived in California now for, you know, I have homes in a couple of places, but I, I lived in California for 25 years, I still do. And uh, obviously, you know, many people in law enforcement and in the intelligence business there, security business, who dares wins is studied, was studied by uh, everything from the intelligence community to law enforcement in terms of the psychology of it, the techniques. I know SWAT cops um, that studied it for the use of the flashbangs, which in those days were completely uh, a new <laughs> distraction devices. So, um, the whole thing of MP5, uh, I shan't really, well, I could, I'll say his name, Phil Singleton, who was Mr. SAS um, MP5 uh, representative around the world. Um, he, uh, a lot of people were like, no, that everything from the weapons to the ta to the tactics to the psychology of the, the Stockholm syndrome everything was used in that film was studied by people in the business wow how how well guys you can go so deep these are, I love these conversations how how well was the film received um, well, it was kind of a mixed bag because I, I think again, and I, I, I'm not, I don't need to defend this. It was a film of its time. If you recall, there was a big thing because Margaret Thatcher did two things that were sort of, you know, very British. One was sending the, 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 the task force down to reclaim the Falklands islands. And the other was obviously the Iranian embassy siege. And it was a tough decision to make, but it was the right decision to make. And everybody got behind it and went, whoa. So that was a, that was one of the reasons that the film was made. Uh, and it wasn't meant to be jingoistic in the sense of, you know, you know, it, it was, uh, it was meant to follow on from a film called the wild geese, the producer, that produced Who Dares Wins also produced Wild Geese. And so it was supposed to be that, you know, a type of film that appealed to a type of audience at a certain time, which it, which it did. And um, you've got to see it from that point of view, although we got a, it got a lot of stick because for some reason they apparently used a CND um, sign during some of the filming of the crowd at the beginning of the film there was various signs peace signs that we used and I don't think the writer George Markstein who I met who also wrote The Prisoner uh, and I can bore for Britain about The Prisoner um, uh, it intended it to be a slight on CND or the peace movement it was actually meant to be the symbol of the disrespect for the peace movement by people that were trying to use it for different meet different reasons so it what it was to show a the juxtaposition of the peace movement um against the idea that we should be able to defend ourselves and britain should be able to defend democracy so it wasn't having a go at cnd it was trying to say the other side of this that the argument is that you can have peace and as long as you are 
be prepared to defend yourself, that's great. But if you disarm us, we can't defend ourselves. You will get abused. And so I think that was part of the message that George was trying to say in the film. Um, and it got twisted into, no, we were bashing CND, which we weren't at all. How did military fuck? So how did the SAS take, take this film? Do they... Do they, do they take it as legendary? Was, was it scoffed at? Was it, how was it at the time? I think the best review is by Rusty Thurman, um, who went through the film. The techniques, the actual house-clearing <clears throat> techniques that are practised at the Killing House are pretty, are pretty spot-on, actually. You don't forget, these are the days we're running around with a respirator, an S6 respirator, and a Browning eye power. Um, this was all revolutionary stuff it had not never been seen before and the use of flashbangs and distraction devices that were first used uh, in mogadishu i believe um taken out by the regiment to, to this concept of having a distraction device the flashbangs that was all new stuff it never been done before and it was a tremendous risk the actual raid itself people go yeah but it was so well planned and all that kind of stuff it could have been uh, but there was a lot of unknowns and the unsung heroes in that situation, we're actually the negotiator. I've, I've met Trevor Locke. I've talked to Trevor Locke. So I know what the situation was inside the actual embassy. And the actual VZ-63, not the Scorpion, but the other Czech machine gun that one of the guys had, I've handled that weapon. So there was a lot of risks that were taken in terms of, and they, the regiment carried off that raid brilliantly. So I think the film itself was seen as a, um, the techniques and everything were, were seen as pretty spot on. And at the end of the day, Lou did go to Hereford and did go to the killing house with Ian Sharp and they studied the techniques and put it into the film. So there's a lot of stuff in there that people go, like even the wall imploding where we end up being shot. I got shot in the house in, in, in the Muse. That where they implode the wall, you can talk about whether it was physically possible to do that or not. But the removal of the bricks to put in the listening devices, again, I know where those actual listening devices are. Um, that was all real. They actually did that. They actually removed the bricks so they could get listening devices through the walls so they knew where people were. So there was a lot of it technically, which was spot on. Yes, it's interesting. Um, I read somewhere, I've read a fair bit about the SAS, the formation of the SAS, uh, Colonel Maine, so yeah, Pat, Paddy Maine. Um, I like, I'm, I'm not a warmonger and I'm a, I think there's better ways, let's say, but I do like reading the old military stuff because it's, I like real life. I like to spend my, if I'm going to read, I want to read real life stuff because there's so much exciting stuff out there. And um, I did read somewhere that a significant proportion of SAS operations go tits up, basically, which if you think of the nature of what these men are willing to do, they're all willing to not come back, aren't they? Which is a brave thing in itself. And by this, I refer to all of our, all of our armed forces um but the embassy my gosh it 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 all could have gone so wrong couldn't it i mean there were things that that didn't go to plan they say no no plan survives first contact with the enemy um with the enemy we we had the guy hung up on the rope which was just unexpected he's but but on fire on a rope um 
when that charge went off in the famous BBC clip, it almost looked like it took the guys out. And then it was, it was a significant amount of time before they got back in through that window. Certainly enough time to execute most of the hostages. Um, and again, I mean, there's no disrespect. I'm just saying that, that this, it, it could have had a very different outcome, couldn't it? Well, one of them, as we know, um, had an RDG-5 Russian hand grenade which he didn't, he didn't pull the pin on. Mm. It wasn't until later on that he was coming down the stairs that one of the lads saw that he had a grenade and whacked him on the back of the head with his MP5. And then he, got, then he, was, then he was shot because he was trying to pull the pin out. But if he'd have pulled that pin out in the room where the hostages were, as soon as he heard that first bang, there would have been lots more dead hostages. And he just didn't do it. We will never know why. You know, we don't know why. I, I think I know why, because, again, I, I got some insights from Trevor Locke about his battle with Aoun, the number one terrorist at the back, when the guy put his foot through the window. Um, and a lot of that is to do with the Stockholm Syndrome. And uh, anyway, if, if he'd have pulled the pin on that grenade, which we know he had, or they'd have picked up the little submachine gun that they had and decided to execute people, it would have been a very different story. Yes, and I... Um... Yes, very much, and I've had Robin um, Horsfall. Yeah, Robin Horsfall's been on the podcast, I think, three three times now, and he was one of the chaps at the bottom of the stairs that put some rounds into this this uh, unfortunate gentleman. Um, and also, we're going to get Rusty. Uh, well, as you know, because we've both just been speaking to him, but <laughs> he's he's um, he's going to come on soon, and he's quite aware as to. Uh, the defence landscape, let's say, where 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 we're heading as as Europe. So I'm keen to to probe him probe him there. But back to the film, Mark. <laughs> what 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 were there any bloopers on it? Were there stuff that went wrong? Were there any accidents? It it was quite. Did, were there any um, service personnel that did the stunts, or is that all taken care of by stuntmen? No, there were advisors or from women. the regiment on the set. Eh? I said, I said, I did a blooper. I said, stuntman. You're not allowed to say that anymore. It's stunt, stunt persons. Or stunt performers. There were um, people on the set and hanging around, let's put it that way, uh, usually in the bar, but uh, where I was with other people, um, who were serving with the regiment at the time. That is true. Um, I won't, they put anonymous at the end of the film, so I won't name them for various reasons. Um, but there were people involved. And as I say, Lou did go to Hereford and was, was guested around uh, uh, and shown around and shown some of the techniques. So there was a certain amount of cooperation uh, with the filming. Um, although the stunt team themselves was run by a guy called Bob Simmons, Bob was one of the original James Bond stunt coordinators and he coordinated the action per se in the little bits of stunts that we did. And obviously we had the choppers, Ministry of Defence lenders, the um, uh, little scout helicopters. Um, there was a couple of times when things got hairy, particularly up in Snowdonia when we were filming the scene, because I was up there with Lou during that period. Um, Ian had got them on the edge of a cliff and Morris Roeves, who uh, is the officer that jumps out of the helicopter, wow, that chopper pilot, I believe his name is John Cowie, but there was actually more than one chopper pilot. But anyway, the weather was atrocious and how he managed to hold that Skype 
that scout helicopter on that edge. I don't know. He did a tremendous skill. And I remember they only tried it twice again because Ian was like, we don't need to, we're not trying this again. And, um, Morris almost fell out of the helicopter. He almost fell out of it. And he told me afterwards in the bar, he said, I was terrified. He said, literally, because he suffers from vertigo, he thought he was just going to fall out. So he was riding the skin, hanging on, and he was literally hovering above, trying to land this helicopter in this gale, and um, basically fell out of the helicopter. And uh, we got away with it, though. But, but, other than the actor that got that got his nose broken um, during the interrogation scene by accident, Lou landed a bunch on somebody, um, and uh, it, it was it was a pure accident. There was nothing about it. He just clunked the guy in the wind, and he had a big hood over his head. And you can look if you look carefully, you can see the difference in the body shape um, of the guy in the hood and and, and the smock. Uh, other than that, really, there wasn't really any any damage there was nobody injured seriously mm. i'm just going to chip in here martin say for friends at home if you haven't seen this film and you'd like to i'm going to put a link uh below this video where you can buy the dvd so treat yourself have a saturday night in and um watch this classic friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thank you. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contained high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com podcast.